fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to F Triple G B T. Now, this is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology, and we make it a reality. We are the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With me, the physics phenom, Doctor Michael Dennon. Great to be here, Dan. As always, you know, one thing I love about doing our podcast is I get to, you know, engage in my obsessions. Um, two obsessions people may not be aware of is my obsession with the Egyptian mythology and gods and the Greek gods and mythology. Um, the one minor problem is I, I really don't remember the Egyptian gods very well. I, don't have, I, I can't keep track of them. I'm not good at knowing what's going on, but I do love them. And I love that we're doing an episode where I was able to learn more about them. Um, don't know how accurate the show was, but I feel like I learned a lot. I feel like you just defined me, Denon, you know, loving things and not knowing anything about them, but trying to learn about them. That's my defining characteristic, which is why we are kindred spirits. Uh, but, you know, we have a fellow kindred spirit of our own, and that is our enigmatic engineer, Ben Seepser. Ben, where are you broadcasting from this week? Dan, I've come to, the, to Cairo to see the Great Pyramids of Giza, one of the most amazing engineering feats ever accomplished by man. I'm getting a little worried, though, because I'm seeing some very sketchy characters climbing the pyramids and some very weird lights flying all over the night sky. I don't know what's going on, and I need your and Dr. Denon's help to figure out what's happening here. Ben, you know I'm always there for you. We talk a lot about superheroes on the show. I tell you, you want to be a superhero, not a supervillain. So who would I be not to come to your aid? Uh, Denon, I, don't, I cannot speak for him. I think he'll be there. I don't know. Um, but we're going to trust that he will be because we are a team. And, you know, that's what we learn about watching Marvel shows. And this one is no exception because in some ways, you know, Mark Spector is a team of one because he has several people working for him, except they're all just existing in his own head. Uh, but this, this show <laughs> is, 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 you know, inspired by Moon Knight, which is a lot of fun for several different reasons. Not the least of which what you talked about, Denon, which just has some fun Egyptian mythology. But I have to say, you know, if we're going to comment on the show itself, I was blown away by Oscar Isaac's acting ability in this show. He plays two characters that are completely distinct. He pops into them, you know, within the drop of a hat. He is he is absolutely phenomenal. And Denon, as the physics phenom, you know what phenomenal can be. I do, Dan. I do have to make a comment. You mentioned that he does this at the drop of the hat. Um, so we all know that with the hat I have, of course I'll go to Egypt and help Ben. I just wanted to right. throw that in. I know I'm backtracking a little, but it, it should be obvious where I'm going to go. Yep. And I totally agree with you. I mean, I have to say that part of it, I mean, I think in this one, unlike some Marvel movies, it was less the big fights near the end and the spectacle. It was mm -hmm. his acting. It was the switching back and forth. It was the not knowing what was really going on. Like almost, I mean, a lot of people have said this. I recognize I'm quoting other people. It was cool to have the fights without seeing the fights for like the first mm -hmm. half of the series, right? Mm -hmm. um, right. And so, and and which was the real one? You know, like you 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 weren't a hundred percent sure um, for right. this. So lots of surprises, lots of interesting twists and turns. I mean, clearly, I've already spoiled a whole lot for the audience by my yeah, randomly. But we'll try not to spoil anymore. 
<laughs> well, it's interesting <laughs> to watch a guy become friends with another aspect of his own personality. I mean, that's a weird concept, which we're going to explore later on. But uh, yeah, it's 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 a little strange. Um, but you know, the first thing we talk about here uh, is you know what who is Mark Spector? Who is Moon Knight? What, what what's going on here? And we've never talked about this before, but. You know, they mention it in the show, but Moon Knight is the avatar of Khonshu, who is an Egyptian god. And, you know, the word avatar actually comes from Hindu culture. It's specifically about a, a material incarnation of a deity on Earth. It's, it's, you know, it's a specific word in Hindu, but I think that concept exists, you know, all throughout history and, and all throughout, you know, storytelling as well. And I think... We got someone here who can tell us who the most popular avatar possibly of all time was. Uh, I feel like this is this is a softball for you, Denon. Oh, it certainly is. I mean, it's clearly Jesus Christ as the avatar of Yahweh. Um, mm-hmm. You know, now when you say most popular, I mean it is only at this moment in time Christianity. I think is outnumbering in some ways, but I feel like we're losing rapidly to some other populations and religions. So uh, Jesus may have his most popular avatar um, ranking in danger. I haven't checked the numbers recently <laughs> enough. Right? What his Q you know? rating is. We'll have, to, yeah, we'll have to figure that out. We'll have to figure that out. Um, it's interesting that you say, I mean, I totally, I'm with you. I, Jesus, big avatar, support him. I, I do think um, there should be another category, Dan, funniest mm-hmm. avatar. And I yeah. feel like Zeus wins most of those. I mean, he turns into a goose. He turns into gold coins. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. I assume we're going to count these as avatars. They're material, uh, you know, manifestations of Zeus. Um, so I think for goofiest avatars, we've got Zeus. I don't know what other categories you are throughout, but I feel a Twitter poll coming on here around yeah. avatars of gods. That is interesting. Uh, what do you think, Ben? I mean, you know, you look like an avatar yourself. I don't know if you're working with an Egyptian god or some other pantheon. Uh, but what do you think about avatars? What's your initial impression? Yeah, I think the avatars, the concept of the avatar is interesting. This power working through human, a human to, you know, exert their will. I, I kind of prefer the direct approach. You know, I, I kind of like the idea of more like Thor in Marvel, where Thor's a real person and he comes down and he's... Doing his, he's doing the work himself. You know, he's not just pawning it off on some guy to do the work for him. You know, right, I, right. I kind of like a, you know, a deity that gets its hands dirty and does the work <laughs> right, itself yeah. rather than letting some other sucker have to do it for them. <laughs> I like that. Well, I will tell you before we get into this, I have to tell you a personal story. Is when I first started playing Magic: The Gathering, trying to get some nerd cred here. Uh, one of my favorite cards for the um, for the, the there are different colors, and so the color white is a lot of gods and mm-hmm. holy and healing. And one of them was called Personal in- uh, Incarnation. And it was this six six creature, but if he was killed, you lost half your life. And I never quite understood how that worked. It seemed like it was a little one sided. Because uh, if that creature dies with one card, you know you could end up. That's it. And it was never reprinted. But for some reason, that always captured my attention. And essentially, it's what we're talking about here. It's avatars. But this, you know, this raises a question, Den, and I have to ask you. I got to put you on the hot seat here. You know, as a man of science. And a man, you know, uh, of religion, you know, you, you you mentioned being a Catholic, but you've chosen your own flavor of Catholicism. Uh, I think you pick and choose. So do you pick and choose to believe that Jesus is an actual avatar? Uh, is he, does, did he represent a deity on earth? And how does that connect with science? So, you know, it's interesting, Dan. I would never have phrased it that way until you so cleverly masterminded the analysis of this. 
if okay. I might reverse your name there briefly. Sure, yeah, please. Because <laughs> that's me what too. I do. I'm Den and Michael on Twitter. Den and Michael. You're mastermind <laughs> analysis to me, right? Like <laughs> right, that's how sure. my brain works. Um, I love it. But I think that is actually the quintessential definition, you know, of Jesus being fully divine and fully human. And I do joke, you know, I tease you that you accuse me of Catholicism, that I often declare medieval and no longer valid. Um, (laughs) Jesus being, you know, human and divine goes well before the medieval period. It's one of the most consistent features of Christianity. So definitely, if I did not accept that, you know, I would lose my card um, and I'd be kicked out of the group. He is the face of Christianity. I think we can all agree. No, we can all agree. Jesus is definitely, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, without Christ, you don't have Christianity. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So there you go. But I do think, and we'll come back to it, but I do think there's a very interesting deep scientific question here because a core metaphysical question is, whatever it is, if there is something non-physical in reality, you know, other than our you know, protons, electrons, space, time, there's always the challenge of what does it mean for the non-physical to interact with the physical? And it's really a great metaphysical question. It's a great theological question. And it actually is a great science question because how would you how would you expand how you do science from the physical to the non-physical? And consciousness is a great example. I could go mm-hmm. on for hours on this, Dan, but I will stop there for now. Well, it's an interesting question because, you know, we're looking at you know, uh, history of religion is very interesting because now, you know, Christianity, you have one God, three parts. It gets a little tricky. There's a couple different aspects. But, you know, we're talking about the Egyptian mythology. You mentioned Greek mythology and, you know, by default, Roman mythology. Uh, <laughs> there, you, know, you have this group of people, this pantheon of gods who all do different stuff. They're all in charge of something. Right. And I think that that's a very interesting way from a narrative. You know, I'm the master of film and television. We're looking at a television show here. And from a narrative standpoint, the characters are great. Right. And, and they all look at aspects of human personalities and human tendencies. And I think that's what I love about a lot of these when you look at the, the structure of the gods and even, you know, Thor, Love and Thunder, uh, w- you know, that's another great movie that just came out and explores, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Ben, the Nordic mythology as well. But what I like about it is that the gods are powerful, but they're not all powerful, but each one of them is flawed like human beings. And we kind of portray in the deities aspects of ourselves that are both strangely human and flawed, but also extraordinarily powerful, which in some ways I think that's how we want to look. We want to be able to have our flaws, but also be powerful. Same thing could be said about Marvel superheroes. Uh, But, you know, Ben, as someone who is probably on the other end of that spectrum, I'm curious, what do you think about how, uh, from, from that standpoint, how do human interaction, how do human tendencies reflect in in our deities? How, How do you think that that's looked through time? That's what I really like about the polytheistic religions is that it in some ways reflects man's actual structure a lot better than these monotheistic religions. You know, when you look at the Greek or the Roman mythologies and you got one person in charge of war and one person in charge of parties and one person in charge mm-hmm. of the crops and one person in charge of the ocean and so on and so on, you know, it, it's this division of responsibility that w- maps, you know, the world and the world's operations, just like a business today would map its operations. You know, it, it's a division mm-hmm. of responsibility. It's It makes it so that the gods, in a way, are more human because they can't do everything. You know, they need help and they need to focus on one thing because you can't know everything. You know, how is Poseidon going to, you know, deal with crops? He doesn't know about 
crops. He, he has salt water, the thing, the worst thing for crops. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. you, you need you need that division of labor to re- labor to really have a proper uh, pantheon that works well. <laughs> I like that it's like a corporate structure. That is funny. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm still a little stuck, Dan, back on a comment yeah. you made about Ben. So you were talking mm-hmm. about how humans, you know, embrace both being flawed but really want power, and Ben's on yep. the opposite end of that spectrum. So I'm not sure what the opposite of embracing our flaws and wanting power is. Is Ben embracing power and not wanting flaws? I'm trying to figure this out. But anyway. <laughs> uh, he could be flawless and also uh, very humble. Yeah. You know, the oh, opposite okay, of good. me, for sure. Yeah, no, I, like I said, I, I heard everything Ben said, but I was still trying to figure out what the opposite end of the spectrum was. Nah, I um, don't know. Spectrum could go yeah. anywhere. Yeah. It could go anywhere. But I, I do, I mean, there's a, I'm, I'm totally with Ben on this. And, and what was fascinating to me about this movie, Moon Knight, is I had never really thought of avatars. As you, as you mentioned, Dan, I think, you know, they're much more in the Hindu tradition. Certainly the Greek gods, except Zeus turning into these funky things, tend to just show up as themselves and take care of business on their own, like the Norse Mm -hmm. gods. So Mm -hmm. there is this, you know, sort of interesting feature that I loved in this is the connection between having an avatar and not played into how much influence and power um, the various gods had. As far as I could tell, that was sort of the Mm -hmm. sense I was getting. Um, And that goes back to the question you asked me. I mean, I think... There is this really interesting connection between, okay, if you have something that's not particles in space-time, how does it interact with things that are particles in space-time? And presumably the Egyptian gods are something different than the mortal human people, so they need a way to interact. Um, So this is an interesting way to go to achieve that interaction. That they have to create something physical— to, in order to interact with each other because they are non-physical. I mean, that's, a, yeah. that's an interesting aspect. Yeah. Well, here, I'm going to throw something else at you, Den. I'm going to throw you a curveball. Uh, you know, I, I was raised Catholic, so I can sling with the best of them. And when you look at Catholicism, it's very unique because you have something that I, I think is, is only in Catholicism, and that's the, the saints. And each saint uh, allegedly performed, I think, three miracles for them to be canonized, and each one of them is technically you know, in charge of a certain aspect of life, be it, you know, St. Saint, uh, Saint Andrew, I think, is helps you find lost items. My grandma always told me to <laughs> say a prayer to St. Saint- oh, St. Anthony, I'm sorry. Jeez, I'm yeah. getting, gotta get back to my childhood. But you say a prayer to St. Anthony, you, you can find your stuff. You know, you say a prayer to St. Christopher to help you with travels. You know, there's all these little, you know, uh, little effigies and, and things like that you can, you can have. So where do you fit in that? I mean, this, if this is in your belief system, does this kind of fit along that same line, where in some ways the saints, while not they are they are in some ways divine but they also kind of are in charge of their own they have to stay in their own lane uh from a you know a a theistically corporate structure but you know they are still divine and they have aspects of it are they avatars i don't know maybe but there's some something going on there that's an interesting question dan and and you know Luckily, I've gotten way better than my Little League days when I, I hit the dirt on the first curveball that was thrown at me and it broke over the plate for a strike. <laughs> so, you know, I, I've improved. I've improved sure. from those days. Um, yeah. yeah, but the curveball was a nasty thing once some kid learned how to throw it. That was That's right. always something that, you know, struck me. Um, well, it didn't hit Can you me hit this curve? <laughs> Can you hit this curveball, though? This is a pretty, this so is this, a 6 this this is is an an baby. Yeah. No, I, I like this because I think when we think about – I like to make the comparison of what's happening in Moonlight and those avatars, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I think in the classic 
view of saints, and even to the way I sort of think about them, they are not quite avatars. They are interesting in that they have done miracles in principle when they were alive, and, and they kind of help you out. They're kind of like that next level down, right? Mm-hmm. They're helpers, right. right? Like they're really good people who, you know, have a little extra say. I will say, I just have to slip this in there. Um, you know, for those of you who are familiar with Notre Dame um, and their football program, um, Notre Dame means, you know, mother of God, our mother. There is a very famous sort of hardcore Catholic belief. Jesus doesn't care who will win a football game, but his mother does. <laughs> <laughs> that's really funny. So, like that. so that's why we pray to Mary, mother of God. Right. And, and my high school had that as our chant. Before every soccer game, every sports event, the team would gather, the, the coach would go, Mary, Mother of God, and we'd scream really loud, pray for us. Um, right. It was sort of our battle cry. Um, I felt it was yeah. like the Scots blowing the bagpipes. Uh, so so yeah. I have to be honest, Dan, yeah, I'm connected yeah. to that tradition. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's great. I mean, look, you, we don't know who's a sports fan up there. Yeah, everyone's praying left and right. They're praying to the wrong guy. Uh, he doesn't care about sports. The big man doesn't care. It's, you know, it's the it's the Holy Mother. That well, that, that's why you got to go back to the polytheistic pantheon, because then you mm-hmm. do have a god. Of, you know, there's got to be a god of football and a god of baseball <laughs> and a god of Definitely. hockey. You know, it's all covered. And you know exactly who cares about what your sport is. <laughs> Right. You know what you're doing. You got to pray to the right person to do the right thing. You don't want the wrong person to hear the prayer. They're not going to listen. Nothing's going to happen. Uh, but, it, but, you know, what's kind of what's kind of cool about this is you know, human beings can't help but put their stamp, dare I stay their, say their stink, on whatever it is that they create. And, you know, the gods are no different because... In this show and, you know, in Greek mythology, Egyptian, uh, all, the, all the mythologies, there, there's politics, right? There's always inter-deity politics. And in some ways, the humans in this show, Moon Knight, become the pawns in their gigantic, uh, you know, chessboard where they're, each one's trying to outmaneuver the other. Some are putting people in timeout. Uh, they're, you know, they're, 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 they're getting rid of them, right? I mean, they, they don't exist because they've been iced out of the situation. Uh, but this is, you know, this is kind of a cool aspect of it. And I would think, you know, if I believed in higher power, if there was a higher power, if there were several higher powers, if the higher power was div- di- divided into several different entities, I do believe that they would still play politics, um, even though that seems to be a human construct. I do think that would that would exist as we see it here. And that's kind of what the avatars serve. I, I think that's right, Dan, that if you have... Well, you know, we talked about this in our love, death, and robot thing, right? Mm -hmm. If you have intelligent life, you know, is one of its um, sort of drawbacks and challenges, if there's multiple forms of it, is the politics and the breaking down and not working together, whereas, Mm -hmm. right, the creature that was all integrated didn't necessarily use intelligence except as needed as a defense, right? Mm -hmm. And that integrated whole creature, um, you know, just does better, um, you know, do you naturally end up with a corporate structure? I mean, it's we, mm-hmm. we talk about evolution right. a lot. You know, we, we had a whole episode on the evolution of speed. Um, mm-hmm. And right. I learned early on that the definition of civilization was specialization. And so we see that everywhere. Right. And so yep. Um, yep. it's a very intriguing thought. I, I'm, I, I like where you went with that. Yeah, I like that we kind of see this. I mean, I like that they kind of spotlight it in, in Moon Knight too, where like all the avatars are these corporate drone-looking uh, people right, in suits yeah. and uh, and business wear. But I, I think that's a good point that this, you know, this management of who's in charge and 
how do we we have to vote on whether or not to punish you know the former avatar of Khonshu because you know Khonshu's saying he's you know bringing up this other god and is that other god okay like th this this whole po political structure of it all is a fascinating thing and you have to wonder like if you know in a in a place where like there's Zeus in like the in the Roman and Greek pantheons where you have like a true king of the gods and then right. the lesser gods how do you how do you have that structure like if there's one person who's allegedly much more important than the rest do they get more votes do they does mm -hmm. only their vote matter like I, I'm very impressed by the clear democracy that was exhibited amongst the uh, avatars <laughs> in uh, in Moon Knight. <laughs> I mean, if you have a board of directors, the guy who owns the company has more shares. I mean, uh, it's it's very you get into the minutia there. I don't think that there's shares, but there's got to be some some people's you know vote may technically be worth one vote, but the influence that that vote has is spread far and wide, I think is probably how it would work. Well, for all we know, whoever owns the Egyptian pantheon, you know, four of those avatars are his board members, and that's how it right. really works. It's <laughs> exactly how it works. Well, this made me think of one thing just to close this up, because, you know, when I've worked in Hollywood a long time, and one of the interesting things that you see are in some ways for high-powered executives and studio heads, they all have assistants sometimes a team of assistants. And when you know Hollywood, the people who really run it, the, the grease, the gears, are those executive assistants. They really take care of the business. And in some ways, uh, you don't want to say run it, but they make things a lot smoother. They, in some ways, are the avatars of the high-powered executive. And it is interesting because just like in this show, some assistants will act. They do have the power. They do have the influence because of who they are connected to, just like in Moon Knight. But in some ways, also like in Moon Knight, some of the avatars and some of the assistants can overstep their bounds and not realize that they are not the multi-billionaire. Uh, they are just a person who handles the multi-billionaire. But this is the politics that exists in real life. We can see it. And I cannot Im I imagine it would have to translate over into even, you know, at, at the deity level, which is the ultimate level. Uh, but let let's talk about an avatar in particular, right? Like, let's scoot this down. Let's 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 zoom in a little bit and talk about Moon Knight, aka Mark Spector. Now he's a very interesting character because he seems to have multiple personalities in his head. He has disassociative identity disorder. And this is, you know, we talked about this a little bit with our Hulk and Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde episode that we did last year. I'll put a link to it. We talk about it a little bit, but it is interesting to see a superhero with superpowers and have multiple ways and feelings in which to kind of enact those powers. And I think then, and this, this is kind of interesting because what you have is, you know, is someone whose individual personality is reflected in the outward, not only their outward appearance, but in the powers that manifest. And I really like this unique aspect of the show. I do like that connection between his, his sort of, um, interstate and his powers. And this, I'm going to bring it back to this connection between non-physical and avatars. There's there's a really interesting work by a, a philosopher, well, psychologist, Don Hoffman. He's at UCI. I've quoted him before. And mm -hmm. he talks about the fundamental things being conscious objects and our bodies being basically like avatars. So he uses the words icons like on a computer screen. And you could imagine, right, that as the core consciousness changes – the way it drives the interface changes, right? And so, you know, we see that in our computers, right? Different subroutines, different programs have different, you know, 
icons and interactions on the screen. So it, I, I really love this visualization of the inside changes what the outside does. Um, and that there is a deep connection between the two. And, and in a weird way, you could say, well, the body could probably always do all of these things. And the pieces that are activated are activated by the conscious on the inside. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's really fascinating. I think what, what's also interesting about it is that the, we truly see that outward appearance changing, right? You know, depending on which personalities in charge of the body at the time, it changes the Moon Knight suit itself. So there's this manifestation of the power, the, the superpower part of it is entirely based on, do you want to look like the cool, suave James Bond guy? Or do you want to look like the, I don't know, Indiana Jones, rough and tumble uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> character? Right. You know, it, it's this fascinating thing and how the functionality of, Every aspect of Moon Knight is so dictated by these different personalities. Well, and what's interesting is, you know, that, that I like that. And, and what you said, Denon, it kind of made me think of, you know, you, you know the, the different power changes, the icon and all that. But, but what if, what if the, the person, what if the human being, what if Mark Spector, you know, our biology, I don't think is meant to hold the power of a god, right? I mean, that's a reason. If you mention the physical and non-physical, right? Like inherently in the definition, they're not meant for each other. And so I think what we see is interesting in Moon Knight is that, you know, just the presence of Khonshu constantly in his head, you know, some have speculated that that's actually what's causing the fragmenting of Mark Spector's mind because it is difficult to hold that power, right? And, and what I like about this is it kind of shows us that, you know, you heard the old saying, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. But with this, it's great power comes at a great cost. You know, his wick is mm. still burning. I mean, when he is when he is the avatar of Kanchu, he may have this incredible power, but it comes at a cost. And in some ways, I really like that because, you know, when you look at Superman and some of these other characters, there's no consequences. They're all good people with powers <laughs> that they don't have to give anything up for. But this... Mm. If you want to do right and you want to have this power, you have to give something up. And in this case, it's Mark Spector's sanity. You know, I love that, Dan, and it goes really well with my, my analogy still of like the computer behind the icon being the consciousness behind what your body can do. Yep. And we all know that if you juice up the, the, the power, right, if you put in more current, um, it might run for a while, but eventually you'll, you know, you'll ruin the computer or you'll blow out the screen. Right. Now, there is an important difference when you grab your F triple GPT mug. Yes. Right. You you can put anything in there. Right. Anything. And and even with great power, there are no consequences. So I'm totally <laughs> with you on this, Dan. You know, yeah. with the avatar, great power comes great consequences. And I think that's consistent with this interface idea. But the yeah. interface of the yeah. mug between the fluid I put in and then drinking it, perfectly smooth. Love how it works. And it, has to be, it can be liquid, it can be solid, you can put gas in there. There are no consequences to what you decide to put in there. Uh, I think that's a great point, Denon. There's also no consequences, though, when you bring your fascinating gadgets and gizmos and gear-based technology water bottle with you, especially if you're in Egypt, like I am right here, uh, and it's it's dry and you're thirsty and you need a water bottle that seals and will keep your liquids uh, from evaporating into the night sky. You got to rehydrate when you're in Cairo, hydrate. You got to hydrate. But I, I think the other thing that's really important to think about here is 
the suit is a big aspect of the power. It's, it's not entirely clear to me how much of it is, because obviously Mark Spector is like brought back from the dead, even though mm -hmm. he, he himself is shot, not the suit. But they reference the suit as like his healing infinity suit or whatever. You know, it's Khonshu's suit. It's, it, the, Khonshu, the power is, is in many ways in the suit. And so I think it's interesting that um, the, the suit itself is the manifestation of the power. And is he really extracting, is Mark Spector extracting that energy from himself or is it being channeled through the suit to him? And it's more of like an exosuit that's mimicking his movements. Um, and he doesn't really have to worry about exerting himself too much with the suit. I think it's the second one. I think that the, his abilities are augmented by the suit. And, and I think that that's reflected in each personality, which th they each have a specialization uh, that I think can be used through the suit. And I think what's interesting is, you know, we talk about the multiple personalities. The, the, one of the, 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 the concepts in here that, that's, that's a little unsettling in some ways, especially if you were in the middle of it, is how, you know, uh, we see Stephen Grant. Uh, he just, he's got, you know, restraints on his bed. You know, he thinks he's sleepwalking. Uh, it would be very, very odd, very, very uh, unsettling to suddenly wake up in a situation where you're in danger, where, you know, Mark Spector has gotten into a fight, you've taken over the body, and now you're in the middle of a fight, and you don't know how to fight. Uh, that would be really <laughs> scary, uh, besides being completely disorienting. I mean, you, you just wake up in another, another land, you wake up in Cairo, Ben, uh, you know, ready to fight a bunch of bad guys. To me, that was, in some ways, uh, the most difficult part of this story to really wrap my head around if I was sticking myself in the Moon Knight character. This whole thing of him, like, not knowing where he's going is kind of weird, too. Like, you see towards the end, you know, he, he looks at himself in a mirror to, you know, talk with his other personality. It kind of makes me wonder, why is he not always carrying a mirror around so he can keep everyone involved in the situation <laughs> and, and knowing what's up so that if they do need yeah. to switch, uh, the other one's informed and ready to uh, take over? Well, I think this is the interesting challenge and why I really like um, the idea of a sort of not two non-physical consciousnesses having to use the same physical body, right? And a lot of the way I think about this, I'm going to bring back on my favorite topic two episodes in a row, foam. Oh, there it is. You know, a lot of the interesting stuff with foam happens at the boundary. So mm -hmm. boundary conditions in physics are really interesting, right? Depending what you're doing at the boundary, a foam is either liquid or solid. So depending mm -hmm. who is at the boundary of the physical body, which I, you know, which underlying consciousness determines right. how the physical body behaves. Now, what's interesting here is there's a third boundary. It's between the two conscious objects, the two people. And what happens, I think, is we see that slowly breaking down and that they can now suddenly communicate with each other. And I'm wondering, Dan, if this is kind of to your point, not only does having the power of Kanshu in you mess with your own psyche, but does the longer you have it, does it mess with that boundary? And that's why we see that evolution in the movie. He's had it too long, mm -hmm. um, and now the boundary's going away. Well, even what he understands is reality is different, right? Like Stephen yeah. Grant believes he's in a realistic dream and, and wakes up. You know, I just had a, a dream where I was dribbling a basketball, and I woke up 
with going like this with my hand. Like that's what woke me up. You know, we've all seen those cute videos, or if we have you know pets, you see the dog who's you know right. moving his legs. He's running through a forest. You hope, uh, but you know these are things that you can wake up and we understand that like oh, there's a difference between dream and a difference between reality. But the things he experiences are so realistic, you couldn't pass them off as a dream, even a lucid dream, which are dreams where you have control of it and they're much more realistic. Um, you know, th- there's this this great documentary on Hulu called Deep Asleep. Where a, a man, by all accounts, uh, a mild-mannered you know citizen uh, of the world, you know he kills his roommate, his female roommate, uh, allegedly while sleepwalking, and holds his you know innocence to this day. It's a fascinating story of what can happen if you are to believe his his side that you know you can be caught up in a reality that is not actually reality; it's an imagined reality. And when you live in the um, the truth of that. Things can get really scary, especially if it if it comes to you know murdering your roommate or you know beating up a bad guy. Uh, I mean, it's it, th- that's where I think that this becomes. Uh, uh, if you really think of what it's like to be Moon Knight, this is where it gets scary when you're one of those personalities. I totally agree, Dan. And as someone who like I've not experienced my wife ever sleepwalking, but she did it as a child and tried some interesting <laughs> things. Yeah, um, and there's some funny stories of her trying to walk out in the middle of the winter. Um, but one of my kids definitely was a sleepwalker. And as the person who in the house who stayed up late, um, it took me a couple times occasionally to realize she was sleepwalking, not actually awake. And it led to very odd conversations because <laughs> what she was experiencing was very different than what I was experiencing. Right. Um, and and um, it did lead – I do have to briefly digress to a funny moment where her we were at a hotel and her sisters thought she was trying to escape. Luckily, what she was trying to go through was the closet door. So, so there wasn't really a danger of right. walking out into the hallway, but quite scary for everyone. Yeah, wow. I mean, it, it's very strange to think about that. Uh, what about you, Bennett? What before we move on from sleepwalking? Are you a sleepwalker? Uh, have you ever made an attempt on anyone's life while sleepwalking? Anything <laughs> not like that? that? Not that I'm aware of, but I am a a like sleep forgetter. I guess is the best way to to put it. So mm-hmm. the. I can enter apparently. Apparently, I don't know for sure. I, you know, this could all just be a, a practical joke. But my understanding is that um, if I get woken up at certain points while I'm asleep, I can. I you can have a conversation with me, and I won't remember it at all. Hmm. And it's like a somewhat different personality too. Apparently, like I think ah. it's mostly a personality that wants to go back to bed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a very tired. But I, I've heard stories of people saying they've. They've talked to me like at you know one two in the morning when and I don't remember any of it whatsoever. Like I can be like half woken up and just don't, yeah, don't remember it at all. Wow, that's that's wild. Uh, uh, I mean that that that's a crazy situation. I mean, if you knew how to weaponize that, if you caught you right at the exact time, <laughs> they could yeah. kind of ask you for anything, and you would you know legally be uh, required to fulfill your end of the bargain. Yeah. Uh, but you know when you talk about fulfilling your end of the bargain, right? I mean, life is a bargain. You know, we, we do things, we, we agree to things, uh, we make choices. And I think one of the, th- the thing about this show, uh, you know, we're going a little bit off science here, but I, I want to, we're a brilliant group, we're the brain trust, right? So I think I can ask some of these questions. Uh, one of the main themes of this show is when do you punish a person? Do you punish a person after they've committed a crime and injured people? Or do you punish them before they've committed the crime with the full understanding that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are a bad person and that the people that they were, that you could save people 
uh, and save injury by punishing them or getting rid of them from society beforehand. You know, this is uh, you know famously explored in Minority Report, both the movie and the book by Philip K. Dick. Uh, this is, you know, this is the, the fundamental conflict of Kanchu versus, um, versus Amit, where you have, you know, one group wants to do it one way, another group wants to do it another. But I think that this is an interesting theoretical conversation. Uh, Denon, I'm curious, as the religious, as the Catholic in the group, I'm sure you have, you know, a, 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 an opinion on this that's dictated by your faith. Well, Dan, I, I actually do, and so I'm going to throw you a counter curveball to your curveball, or hit your curveball um, out right of the back park the as pitcher. a home run. Okay, I'm not, right. Yeah, right back at the pitcher. I'm not <laughs> right. sure which. Um, I, 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 you know me. I'm a big wishy washy fan. I don't yep. like these cut and dry ends. But yep. I'm gonna, I'm gonna counter both ends. I'm gonna go counter punishment. Um, so I think the right thing is restoration. Right. Mm-hmm. Look, I'm Catholic. We're all about forgiveness. That's mm-hmm. our big thing. Yep. And changing, changing your, your behavior, changing who you are. So for me, a lot of it is there's a bit of each that has a positive. Okay. I would never, let me just say, hardcore no on the punishing before you committed the crime. Because okay. who knows? I, I know you said you're 100% sure, Dan, mm-hmm. but I'm a physicist. There's always an error bar. I'm always never 100 percent sure. I'm always 100 percent sure, Dennis. And you're always 100 percent sure. I get it. So yeah. you know, you might go a different route because I I respect your 100 percent sureness. <laughs> I'm never. I'm not 100 percent right. I'm just 100 percent sure. There's a very important exactly. distinction. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, but I'm going with you know. There's something to the um, certainly engaging with them if you have a strong probability of them committing crime to avoid the crime, not punish. Um, but I also think there is something about. Um, our system of punishment after the crime that doesn't actually achieve the core Catholic um, forgiveness and transformation. We're all about transformation, Dan. Look, we turn bread and wine into the body and blood. We turn people who have done negative things into people who do good things. We all know my favorite movie is A Christmas Carol, Mm -hmm. where Scrooge turns good at the end. So, like, I got to go with my roots, Dan, and I'm going to be transforming people left and right rather than punishing them, even if punishment's part of the transformation. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right. I mean, that makes sense. Uh, what about you, Ben? You know, you're you're on the borderline between evil engineer. Sometimes you waffle. Where do you stand on this? I mean, I think it's a fascinating issue where if you know someone's going to do something wrong, um, do you punish them before it? And and I think it's tricky. I don't, I don't think ethically you can punish somebody before they've done something wrong. Uh, and it gets into this... The issue that that kind of fundamentally is the whole problem with Minority Report, which is this issue of, like, say, a crime of passion versus a premeditated crime. And if mm-hmm. you know someone's planning a premeditated crime, that's that's trickier, right? If someone wants to, you know, rob someone or kill somebody or whatever, because and they're planning it and they have all this stuff and reasoning, then that's not exactly a good person. Yeah, maybe you punish them. Uh, but for their conspiracy, not for the actual murder that they have yet have yet to commit. But then you have the crime of passion, which is like you know you, you or crime of circumstance, where you your friend hits you or whatever. There, it's it's not <laughs> you know. There's the classic example of you know the cheating spouse, and you you murder your uh-huh. cheating spouse or whatever. Right. And, and it's in those cases where this isn't premeditated. This isn't a bad person. This is a person caught up in the heat of the moment. And all mm-hmm. you need to do is intercept that heat of the moment, 
create a cool off period. You don't need to punish that person for murder. There was, they were not intending to do a murder. They just freaked out in the moment. So all you have to do is just have someone there, go there with you know this, this judgment that you know is going to happen and just say, cool down. It's going to be fine. Uh, let's take you somewhere else. Uh, and no harm, no foul. Uh, Some people get pretty worked up over the cheating spouse thing, so that might be. I, a, a I little know bit they difficult. do, but maybe she, maybe the, maybe the spouse shouldn't have cheated. Why don't? Couldn't we go back and stop that event? I'm, I'm not, not saying they say- deserve to die, but that is what causes the person to want to kill them. You know, maybe we inter- maybe that's the moment we intercept. I mean, unfor- as we all know, though, that one isn't a crime, so I don't know how pre-crime would <laughs> find it out. But in, in the contru or not the contru, the Amit case. If that's the sin that they're being judged for, yeah, why not? Why not tell them we see you're going to cheat? Don't do it. <laughs> well, here's what I would say. You know, we we're all scientists here, right? We've talked about the block theory of time, right? And this is, you know, you've explained this before, Dan. And this is an idea that everything that exists and that's happened has already happened, and it's just a matter of us experiencing it. You know, like um, like film, uh, you know, like a film reel, like little you know frames right. on a film reel. So let's say that that is what that that is actually how time works, okay? If we exist in that belief system, then I think punishing people before they've committed the crime would actually work because you could tell with 100% certainty what they were or were not going to do. Now, I think, you know, Denon, I'm taking liberties here, so correct me if I'm wrong, and I apologize if I step on any toes here, but I think it is sometimes difficult to accept that it's 100%. But I think in the block theory of the universe, you could accept that. It is 100% because we already know. And I think human beings are so wired to say, well, what if that's that one, 1% of 1%? I mean, look, we put people on death row who – there's plenty of people on death row who are, who are innocent or who don't deserve the death penalty. Uh, that margin of error, I think, is incredibly large, much larger than the block theory of the universe where you know what's going to happen. So I think <laughs> under those conditions, I actually believe – I'm for punishing people before they've done evil if you know 100% that they're going to do something. Well, Dan, I, I, I'd follow that and I'd accept it except for the minor problem of the paradox, right, that is worse than the – well, worse, I don't know, saying bad as the grandfather paradox, right? Mm-hmm. If I have a block universe in which I know, right, that blocks in, – in film, in film strip number 20, you know, someone comes and kills me. Right. But if I punish them in film strip eight, film strip 20 is now different and they haven't killed me. So what were they punished for? It is a conundrum. Like, so part of me, like Dan, wants to go, yeah, 100 percent. I'm with you, Dan. But part of me goes the act of punishing them has just been your Achilles heel and, and the downfall because you removed that block. Um, particularly as we see with Amit, that the punishment usually seems to be to wipe you out. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, right. Like if the punishment is something else, you know, the block universe might reassert itself. And all that happened was you were punished before the crime, but you still committed it. Like that would be a weird world, but that would be less paradoxical. Where the punishment causes you to to, to do the crime. That uh, Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't quite think about that. That's interesting. I mean, then the people who are throwing out justice could not necessarily exist in this universe. They could just affect it and then create a multiverse. It gets complicated. Right. I'm not going to lie. It gets complicated. Yeah, it gets I mean, complicated. <laughs> that, that's the whole problem of Minority Report. The, the, the crimes that, that the story follows 
are caused by pre-crime's existence because pre-crime is used to essentially frame somebody. And so if the pre-crime did exist, the crime wouldn't exist. And then he proves pre-crime wrong by not committing the crime he was predicted to, to do. So th the whole idea is, is kind of faulty because it, it's always a paradox. Like if you know someone's going to do something and then you punish them, then they nece by necessity can't do it in the future. Um, and so there's nothing to punish them for. And, and I, I don't like that paradoxical aspect of it, which is why I think it shouldn't be a punishment but an intervention. Uh. <laughs> and Dan, I have a personal story in this regard that I think explains it and, and captures it well. I joined an adult soccer league when I was in graduate school. Um, and you know in soccer there's the ref and they control. And it's only after you commit a foul that they blow the whistle, right? Uh, yeah. Well, there was, there was a young hothead. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. There was a young hothead player who was prone to fouling, let's just say. And, and I, it had a very mafia feel. I don't mean to insult any mafia members who are in our listening audience. Sure, they but know what at they're the doing. At the end of this you know, first game that this young player was involved, two older Italian guys kind of gently pulled him off the field and, and explained how we don't do that in this league. And there are consequences to those actions. And I'll just say he didn't really fail that much after that, which <laughs> felt a little bit like, a punishment for crimes we knew he was going to commit, yes. but also an intervention of the Ben type that prevented the crimes from happening. So maybe, maybe Dan, we, we blend the both. We learn from the, the Italian um, mafia of the soccer league I was in mm -hmm. um, that punishment slash intervention maybe does work, Dad. I, I, I'm, 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 you know, I'm intrigued. I'm coming around on it. Well, I will say, you know, Ben, when you say that, you know, if you, you're, you're pre-crime, you're going to do something, and if you stop them from doing it, then the crime doesn't happen. That is the purpose, right? That is what you're trying to do. You're trying to get them right. to not commit the crime. Uh, and I do understand the paradoxical elements. All I'm saying is, I think, you know, especially in this show and people in general, they immediately poo-poo the idea of punishing someone beforehand. But I think there's merit to it. I think there's conversation. And I think we've talked about it a lot, but there is still conversation we can still have. Um, you know, errors, additions, and omissions section, things we want to talk about but we didn't quite get to. Uh, Denon, is there anything about Moon Knight you wanted to touch on before we leave it? Well, I, I, I will make a brief comment. I, I agree with Ben from one perspective. The pyramids are an amazing um, engineering feat. I do have to remind people that I always find it interesting um, because not to, you know, highlight things. I am on Ancient Aliens, which is now streaming on Netflix. Um, and they they do, they, you know, they try and like try and be impressed by all these initial pyramids that humans built and claim that because the pyramid was the first structure everywhere, mm -hmm. that that is somehow evidence of aliens. And I do like to remind people, if you pile sand, you do get a pyramid. Mm -hmm. Like that is the fundamental shape. Um, so my view is if anyone had built an upside down pyramid, um, you know, that would have been an even bigger engineering marvel. But right. I don't you know, I don't want to poo-poo it. The, the Great Pyramids, I know I couldn't build one. Right. Um, and so they are amazing. And I love how they show up in, in this movie. And I love when the pyramids show up in every movie. Mm -hmm. It's one of my bucket list things to get to go visit the pyramids. So I'm jealous of Ben being there right now. But I did have to sneak in my shameless plug, plug, plug for Ancient Aliens being streaming on Netflix. Well, I love it. And I will say that this show is streaming on YouTube. Not quite Netflix, but it is streaming now uh, on YouTube as well. Um, ben, is there anything you want to talk about? Anything you wanted to plug before we leave Moon Knight? 
Well, you brought up the restraint thing earlier that, you know, Stephen, you know, ties himself up with these, you know, straps and puts sand around the bed and all this to see if he, like, sleepwalked or whatever. And I'm just thinking, I, I just think of this from the comedic perspective of Mark then taking over the body and, and looking at this stuff and being like, ah, oh, this idiot. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> just <laughs> having to, And then not only avoiding all that stuff, but then having to restrap himself in before he lets St- Steven take control back. It's just a very funny moment to me that it like, you know, Steven thought he was being so smart, like keeping himself uh, restrained. And in reality, this was probably the least effective thing he could have possibly done. Well, yeah, I don't think he quite thought someone was taking over his body, but the, which is what's yeah. funny about it, because that is the way to get around it. Because he just undoes the lock on his on his feet. Uh, you know, I thought I thought about you, Denon, when I saw this. There's a guy, a security guy, in the first episode watching otter videos. He's watching a cute little otter, uh, you know, playing yeah. around in the in the my water. favorite animal. His favorite animal. Uh, there's also this strange guy dressed up. Uh, he's a gold statue, like you see out in Hollywood, where you give him a tip and they start moving around and doing stuff like a like a toy. Um, he's he's in this the show. Stephen Grant talks to him. He does not talk back. I learned that this is an, an Easter egg for Crawley, who's one of the characters in the comic book. But I love that he's in this show. Does nothing. Doesn't move. Doesn't talk. <laughs> Uh, it, it's it's a lot of fun. Some people wish that I was that person on the show who just didn't talk and just looked cute uh, with a nice little monocle. Uh, but no, I, I have very strong opinions and I'm going to express them. Uh, but if you have strong opinions, you want to express them, any more conversation, you can find the show on, on social media. Twitter at FGGGBTPod, Facebook at FGGGBT, website FGGGBT.com. But Denon, where can people find you if they want to carry on a conversation? Well, people can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Just flip my name, at Denon Michael. And then on Facebook, you stick in a prof, at Prof Denon Michael. Ben, where can people find you? You can find me on all the major social media networks, at B Seepser. How do you spell that? Spell that B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R. And I can be found on Twitter, at Daniel J. Glenn, on Instagram, at The Daniel J. Glenn, and on Facebook, at Analytical Mastermind. And if you're listening on your favorite podcast platform, make sure you rate, review, and don't forget to subscribe. And if you're watching us on YouTube, hit the like button, subscribe, and ring that bell so you never miss an episode and you help us out with that algorithm. And finally, this show contains powerful information that can be misused by those hell-bent on world domination. Now, you have this information now, and you have a decision in front of you. Use it for good or for ill, but we request, we demand on this show that you become a superhero and not a supervillain. So until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, of course, if you're listening to this episode and you've gotten this far, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? We're on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. But if you're not already subscribed to those platforms, I made it easy for you. Go to our website, fgbt.com. You'll find links to those subscribe buttons and also links to our social media, both for the show and for our individual experts, the members of the Brain Trust. That's all right there fgbt.com. And before you leave, don't forget to check out our other episodes. You can find the link at the top of the page for everything we've got, and you'll notice 
that we've got both a YouTube version and an audio-only version. Depending on what you like, we got it for you. And if you do like those videos, you can go ahead and subscribe to those as well. We're on youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And once again, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.